This shall be written for the generation to come. There's some things that aren't for sale, but I must maintain something. I'm standing behind this pulpit. There are some things that though death is inevitable, there is some things, though persecution and tribulation is inevitable, there are still some things that you cannot buy out. When is the last time you've been to church where you've seen young people under such conviction because the people of God have been on their face? And there's such a concern and there's such an agony that young people are falling on their faces and calling on God because a spirit of conviction is called down from heaven upon them. How many churches have you been lately where you hear a word comes forth that so burns in your soul? You know it comes from heaven. You know it comes from the heart of God. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? Hey, guys. Welcome back. Episode 4 of Faithful Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Dakota Kaufman. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, just want to start this episode off. Let's, I want to do a little bit of recap on what we've studied this far through throughout Galatians. So chapter one, we learned of Paul's history and his credentials. Chapter two, we learned about the Council of Jerusalem, Paul's special calling to the Gentiles to spread the gospel to them and talked about Christian liberty. And then really after chapter two, Paul starts to get really doctrinal in substance. He set a foundation on the why pertaining to the law and grace, etc. But now into chapter three in the remaining of the epistle, we've we find him setting strong doctrinal teachings and explaining to the Galatians the why behind why it's a bad thing to include the law with God's grace and the work of Christ and to hinge that on salvation. And so Paul ch opens chapter four here. He says, with I say, he is clarifying what we just finished up in chapter three, and he's going to expound on the verses in the last chapter, those last few verses, really verses 24 through 29 in the end of Galatians chapter three. And then Paul closes the end of chapter 3 and errs according to the promise. So Paul has elaborated all of these things in chapter 1 through 3 in Galatians, and he set a good foundation for the doctrinal premises that we're going to study in the remaining chapters of this letter to the Galatians. And he's essentially giving us an illustration about how this all works, about how Gentiles are now grafted in by faith and are now part of the Abrahamic covenant and how they're no longer under the law. And so he's... He's kind of gave all of his, his introductory stuff, and now he's getting into the doctrinal substance about why this is so important for the Galatians and why grace is so important to the Galatians and not to put that law back on them. So at this point, the main idea of the epistle is, is pretty much established that Gentile Christians are in the true Abrahamic succession of faith. And this, uh, this idea of the promise it, you know, it tells them about the Mosaic law and how Christ is now the intermediary, um, you know, and that Christ was the heir of Abraham's testament. And so he was therefore the end of Moses's law and he became that law. And those who are Christ now inherit the blessings of the promise while they escape the curse and condemnation of the law. And now the remainder of Paul's, uh, you know, letter here down to chapter five, verse 12 really is devoted to the illustration of, of this position that, that Gentile Christians, um, you know, the Galatians are now grafted in um, and they are part of the Abrahamic succession. And so he's built this, this awesome foundation for us to now get really, really doctrinal about 
the works of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit and and why grace is so important and why the law you know doesn't apply in in some ways and and so all of those things that we're going to dive into he set you know Galatians chapter one through three he set this this really cool foundation for us to say oh this is this is why it's so important this is why grace is so important and this is why what the Judaizers were teaching them were so detrimental to what had been taught as they were trying to pick up this mantle again um, that put this obligatory thing on them for salvation. And so uh, Paul's done a really good job in, in chapters one through three of setting this this foundation for us. And so um, we'll just start off here in Galatians chapter four, verses one through seven. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth, sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So Paul is now... Elaborating further on the end of chapter three, what we covered in the last episode, that when a, that even when a child, when he's an heir, he's the same as one of the hired servants, and it's being taught, it's being raised, um, so it's it's no more than than one of the hired servants. Um, it's, it's he's not an heir yet, right? Um, and Galatians four and one says, so the Greek word used here is nepios, it means child, and it refers to an infant or minor unable to care for himself or herself, and in the word and and in verse three, it, it, you know, it gives this connotation that like an underage child or or a slave that there's no possession or inheritance yet. There's no decision making rights and and there's no freedom. And so Paul uses the imagery of slavery here and redemption from slavery in Galatians to describe that link between sin, the law, and the law's justified curse on those who disobey the law. And then in, so in verse five he says that God sent His Son to redeem those who were under the law using that same verb that he used in Galatians 3 and verse 13 to describe Christ's redeeming people from the curse. The law pronounces on those who've violated. And so he's using this illustration of slavery to really set a, a, a good picture of, of how Christ set us free from that. Um, that we're not under tutors and governors anymore. You know, that, um, you know, we, we're not, he said he sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Christ became the law for us, and now we are an heir of God and the gifts of God through Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Now if we look at verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. So the Greek word translated completion, so it indicates that Christ came at the perfect time. And so factors that made this such a suitable time included widespread peace in the area, Roman roads, excellent Roman roads and the infrastructure that they had created, and the dominance of one language, Koine Greek. And it was across the empire. And so by these means, the gospel could be spread in ways that would have not been possible in earlier times. You had the infrastructure of the Romans, uh, dominance of one language. All these things kind of came together and made it really easy for the, for the gospel to be spread rapidly at that time. So we were children. We were under bondage to the elements of the world is what Paul's telling us. So, so what, what are the elements of the world? 
Well, in context of everything that Paul's been teaching the Galatians about the law and about grace, it kind of seems that Paul now is, is telling them that the elements of the world, the physical things, that sinful nature of man, that all of that, that we were under bondage to, but now the fullness of the time has come. Christ has came. So now man no longer has to be in bondage under the carnal pull of what the world has to offer. For we know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. And so we're now redeemed. We were, we were like an exiled son that has now been adopted into the family of God. And one privilege of divine adoption is the change of a child's nature. Human adoptions are very special, but they don't change a child's nature, right? The change is only legal and relational, and there's no inner transformation of the child. Or if there is, it takes a very, very long time and a lot of work and a lot of effort. But when God adopts a person into his family, he changes who he is or she is from the inside out. In Christ, we become new creatures. We receive, we receive new spiritual DNA, God's own. How does that happen? God changes our nature by sending the spirit of his son into our hearts. And there in the very core of our being, his spirit remains and it resides. He never departs, but more than that, he transforms us. He changes us. He makes us a new creature. He starts from the inside and he steadily works his way out. And over time, he consumes the whole of who we are. That's what these verses are talking about when he says in verse six, it says, because your sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant or in bondage under sin. He said, but now you're a son. And then if you're a son, you're an heir of God through Christ. You are now God's child. Um, you know, you're not under the same law, the same curses, the same bondage of sin, the same addictions, the same things that you, that you face. No, we're not under the bondage of the rudiments of the world anymore. And thank God for that. God sent his son to us. This is that way that we can be an heir of God through Christ. So now the spirit of God lives in our hearts and cries unto God as a father, as our supplier. And that's how this verse relates this to us as a great father. These verses here illustrate wonderfully that relationship between us and God is like a father and a son. And thank God for that, that we're no longer slaves to sin, no longer in bondage to the rumors of the world. And, and the way Paul illustrates this is if it was to liken it to a father rescuing his son out of great calamity, out of, some, out of a child that was in trouble and, and a dad goes in and rescues it or you know something along those lines. How beautiful is that? That God has given us sonship and bought us into his great family or adopted us into it. And now we are heirs of God and his righteousness and his great works and his gifts through Christ. All right, let's move on. Verses seven through 11 here it says, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them, which by nature are no gods. But now after that ye have known God or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you. So now Paul realizes the Galatians have begun to doubt their status as God's children. And now they're doubtful about whether they'll receive God's inheritance at all, or eternal life, because of what the Judaizers have been influencing them with and telling them. So Paul points to this distinctive cry is um, a way for them to confirm their status as sons of God. As he reminds them, if a son, then an heir through God. He's telling them, no, you are, you are God's child. You are still, your status is still as a son of God because he has bought you. 
that that can't be taken away just because of somebody's words. There's no extra work that you can do. You're still an heir of God through Christ. And says so, so he says now, so now that you are an heir of God through Christ, Paul asked them, how in the world are you going to go back to those old things, to that old life that was weak and beggarly? He's referencing what the Judaizers have been teaching them. They have now experienced the power of Christ and his redemption, his redemptive power and his resurrection. But now they've been influenced back into their old ways and religious habits. And they've resolved what God has done for them and returning them to their old bondage. So Paul says that their former idolatrous worship enslaved them. And it echoes the language of verse 3 that spoke of their enslavement to elementary principles of the world, right? He says such worship is slavery because it is sinful and it can only lead to the law's curse and God's wrath. And you can read about God's wrath being revealed to them, you know, and how that works. And, and Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, is it tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. But Paul's saying, why, why are you going back to that? Why are you going back to those old things, that old life? Um, Christ has, has redeemed you. Christ has bought you. Christ has brought you out of that old life. He says, how are you going to go back to being a slave? How are you going to go back to being that old man, that old woman? How are you going to go back to those weak and beggarly elements? And then he even says in verse 9, he says, Whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Like, What are you, crazy? Why would you want to go back to that? Christ has redeemed you and set you free. Why would you want to go back to the things that have enslaved you and enslaved your mind and, and destroyed relationships and, and turned things upside down in your life? Why would you want to go back to those things again? There will be times in your walk with God where something will come along or someone will come along and will tempt you and pull at you. There will be times where that old man will resurface. But Paul is teaching us here not to go back to those things, not to even look toward those things because they will pull us back into bondage. But Paul is always sensitive to any hint that human beings take the initiative in their relationship with God. That relationship, your relationship does not depend on their own deductions about God or what you think about God or, or even your perfection of your knowledge of God. More so, what's more important of our relationship with God and membership among his people is God's knowledge of us. God knows, God knows to know us. What, what, that our relationship is not dependent on what we know about him in, in essence. It's about God's knowledge of us. God knows us. God knows us intimately. And, and Paul finds it, that's why he's saying, but he finds it incomprehensible that the Galatians would abandon such a grace, gracious relationship with God to return to that oppressive worship of idols. And Paul's shock at the step that they are taking is clear in his repetition of Greek words for again. Saying, you're doing this over and over and over. Why do you keep going back? Why do you keep going back to those things? And uh, he's frustrated, um, like he has been the whole letter, because he's saying, you've, you've experienced the power of Christ in your life. You've experienced the nature of God through God's love, portrayed through Christ's resurrection and death on the cross. And you keep, you're going back. Why do you keep going back to those things? And so there's going to be times that that old man will, will pull at your shirt sleeve and will uh, tell you all kinds of stuff, right? But Paul said, I die daily. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ that liveth within me. And so what, what does that mean to die daily? What does it mean to die out to the flesh daily? You have to pray. You have to seek God. You have to know God. 
And that, you know, he says, why are you going back to those weak and beggar, beggarly elements? Um, and so Paul is telling them, there's nothing that you can do in your relationship with God. You know, there's nothing else to add. And that's what the Judaizers have been teaching them is you have to add circumcision to this to be saved, for it to be effective. And so Paul's saying, why are you going back to those weak and beggarly elements? Those are physical things. They have no weight on your spiritual relationship with God. No, God knows you exactly who as you are. God finds you exactly where you're at, and He changes you from the inside out. He, that resurrection power of Christ, um, and He's saying that's that's enough. That's what He's telling the Galatians. And so, uh, let's move on to verses ten through eleven. And now Paul kind of he starts to transition a little bit here. And in verse ten, Paul is saying, "You keep all the customs, and you keep the rituals of this religious system." Um, where it says he observed days and months and times and years. And uh, so he kind of goes on and he's saying, you keep all these things about the religious system. And the Romans and Gentiles, they had their festivals and they had their customs as well. He's saying, Paul's telling them here, he says, you know all the religious elements of all these dates, and customs that you keep. And so what he's doing is he's setting the context for the remainder of the chapter. And in verse 11, he starts to transition into the why behind his concern about everything that is going on in Galatia and why it's a problem for what the Judaizers have been teaching them. And so he's, like I said, chapters one through three, and even here through start of verse four, he's setting a really good foundation on, and he's about to bring out the why. Um, you know, he's told them that it's not a good idea up to this point. He's gave them, you know, his, his, his reasons up to this point, but now it's about to get doctrinal. It's about to get a little bit deeper. Um, and so his reference points us to the reality of what exactly they are turning back to that we read about in verse nine. And the Galatians are wanting to, or at minimum being persuaded to, right, to turn back again to be slaves. So Paul's saying, I'm afraid that all the labor, all the prayer, all the work, that all everything that I've, I've, I've helped with you has been in vain. Both Paul's suffering and their suffering for the truth of the gospel has been futile. It's worthless if the Galatian believers turn the clock back to their state of enslavement prior to the convert prior to their conversion. The most startling part, really, of verses 1 through 11, especially for the Christian, is its equation with, of idolatry with the misuse of the Mosaic law. So what, what does that mean? So Paul finds no fault, really, in the law itself. The law is not bad. He considers it holy and righteous and good. We find that in Romans 7 and 12. But God gave it not only to demonstrate the depth, how bad human sin is, Galatians 3 and 19, but also to provide guidance for how believers should live. That's what the law's for. It sets that standard. It's that um, it's that barrier that God has given us to let us know, like, hey, you, the depth of human sin is is bad. It's grotesque. It will take you places you don't want to go. But it also provides guidance to how you should live as a Christian. And there are many verses that we can find for for that God gives us instruction, right? So, but Paul doesn't even have really a problem with people observing circumcision, Sabbath rest, or dietary restrictions, some of the old Jewish laws, right? He doesn't have a problem with those things. And sometimes he even he observes these himself. Um, and so the problem, though, in Galatia is simply that the false teachers are imposing observance of the law, and the Galatians are accepting it as if it were necessary alongside faith in Christ for salvation, that they have to have this with faith in Christ to be saved. 
And that is why Paul is so tore up about this, is they put this thing in a place of idolatry. They put this thing as this idol that is equal with Christ, um, that circumcision and these parts of the Jewish law are equal with Christ. And so it's not that the law is bad. It's not that the law is wrong. It's that the Galatians have put it in a place of equal place with Christ. And that's why Paul is so tore up about this. And that's why he's saying all of these things. And how are you going to turn back to these weak and beggarly elements? And you were in bondage. And, and we know the dangers of idolatry. We've read about that all throughout Scripture. And that's what Paul is so aggravated about. He is he is tore up about it. And, uh, and, and rightfully so, um, because they are putting this on a pedestal right beside Christ. And it, that's, that, that can't happen. That's idolatry. But they are misusing something holy and righteous and as good as scripture to diminish the sufficiency of God's gift of deliverance from sin, empowerment through the Holy Ghost and union with Christ by faith. They're putting this thing right here, the law, the scripture, uh, you know, and the things it has taught, right? Like circumcision, that Mosaic law, um, they're putting it on an equal pedestal with Christ. And, and that's what he's saying is that that, that doesn't bring you deliverance from sin. That doesn't save you. That doesn't equal salvation. Only faith in Christ equals salvation. So they're, they're taking this scripture and, and the Mosaic law, and they're diminishing the sufficiency of what God has done through Christ his son, and they're putting it on this pedestal of equal value with Christ. And Paul is tore up about it and mad about it, and rightfully so. That is idolatry. They put it something as equal with Christ. And, and we obviously know as Christians that you can't do that. This act of misusing something that otherwise is good, the law, um, so that it diminishes God's grace and goodness, Paul takes it as equivalent to worshiping other gods and to apostasy. So it was a major deal, right? Um, that they're adding this extra step or this extra thing, and they're equating it with Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection power. They're putting it in the same place. And Paul says you can't do that Christ's work was enough. And that's why he says, I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain, in verse 11. And, and I like what he says in verse 8. He says, How be it then, when you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. You kept all these rituals, you kept all these customs, but now you know God, and now you're going to go back to the things that you used to live in, that, that bondage, those weak and beggarly elements. God help us that, that when God brings us out of things and when God has has brought us and, and set us free from sin and, and an old past life, that we wouldn't look back at that, that we wouldn't wouldn't go back to those old things. Like I said, there's going to be a lot of stuff as a Christian that is it's going to pull at you and it's going to tempt you. And whether it can be people, it can be things, it can be money, it can be jobs, it can be anything. We know that. Um, God help us that we that we wouldn't go look back to those old things, that we wouldn't even look at it. Right. That we would flee from those things. Um, and that's what Paul is, is demonstrating here, you know, along with with he's equating this to idolatry, putting that place, putting things in place of, of where God should be. And that's the danger of what the Galatians were doing. And it sets a really good teachable thing for us to uh, to look at and say, you know what, I don't want to put anything there that could become an idol. And so that's Paul is he's he's torn up about that and and uh, encourages the Galatian church and, and now us that we shouldn't turn back again to those weak and beggarly elements. All right, let's uh, let's move on here. Verses 12 and through 19. We'll read here. Brethren, I beseech you be as I am, for I am as ye are. You have not injured me at all. You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. 
and my temptation, which was in my flesh, he despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness he spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy, because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Ye, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children of whom I travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you. So now Paul, up to verse 12, has kind of laid out the why for everything he's been extremely worried about in the church of Galatia. But now he's talking to them almost as a hurt friend would, right? In verse 12, this is probably a reference to Paul's willingness to give up observance of the Mosaic law when he was among the Gentiles. Something he must have done when he preached the gospel in Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and city in Antioch. And he says, he's th that phrase, you have injured, you have not injured me at all. It's him saying, you didn't, you did me no wrong. And we don't have a lot of context on this to see if there's maybe something more to why he said that, but it could just be Paul describing their kindness to him while he was there among them. Never, but, into verses 13 through 15, we know Paul had some sort of sickness the first time he went to Galatia. We don't know what the sickness was or anything, but it seems to have kept Paul there for an extended period and was one of the main reasons he got to share the gospel in Galatia. This sickness or disability must have been, from, been pretty severe and obvious because Paul says that it presented a, a trial to them, a temptation to reject him as it was common in the Greco-Roman world for suffering people to kind of be mocked and scorned. So it was, it was a pretty obvious sickness, and that's why Paul said it was a trial to them, or a, it was a temptation for them to reject him. And uh, verses 16 through 17, it seems that the Galatians and Paul's relationship was pretty strained with everything that was going on. There was strain there because the Galatians were being pulled from both sides, Paul correcting on one side and great Judaizer pressure from the other to conform. How often does that happen? The world and culture world will attempt to conform you as a Christian. As a young man and young woman, the world will pull at your heartstrings with emotional manipulation. There's, it's going to sound logical. It's going to sound good. It's going to sound great. And the logical balances that, that seem to make sense in regards to it making you a, a better person. I pray that God would challenge this generation to not conform that God would challenge you to not conform, that whatever the world may offer you, whatever culture may tell you is now okay, that you wouldn't be conformed, but that you would stay true to God just as Paul is teaching the Galatians here. And that's what that's why I'm saying he's talking to them almost as if he's a hurt friend. He says, I, I, was, I was there. I, I was with you. He said, but you didn't reject me. You, you, if it was possible, you'd have given me your own eyes. I was so sick, and you still... But now I'm, I'm, I'm your enemy because I'm telling you the truth. And he says, these people are, are affecting you, but they're not doing it well. The Judaizers are influencing you in a bad way is what he's telling them in verse 17. He said, they would even exclude you that you might affect them. In verse 18, he kind of continues his, but it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, not only when I am present with you. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Culture will attempt to manipulate you and shape you and mold you into what the world says you should be. But I, 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 would, I would like to challenge you and pray that God would challenge you to not conform. Now, kind of moving on, when relationships among Christians become strained, especially when the source of the strain is doctrinal disagreement like we're finding here, uh, 
Paul's attitude in this passage offers a really good model to follow. He's not ready to give up on the Galatians, despite the great strain that the false teachers have placed on his relationship with them, but he's, he's willing to go through the emotional stress, the hard work of renewing their friendship and encouraging their spiritual growth. He's confident that Christ will be formed in them, a confidence he often seems to have about other Christians with serious problems. And we can find some other examples of him buying in and having confidence in them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Philippians 1, and Philemon uh, verse 21. But when our relationships with other Christians begin to suffer because of doctrinal differences, we too should be persistent in our attempts at, re at, at reconciliation, trusting that if Christ is truly in those with whom we differ, that their understanding of the faith and maturity in Christ will continue to grow. All right, let's move on here. Um, read Galatians in verse four, chapter four, verses twenty through twenty-seven. Um, it says, "I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of, of the bondwoman, but he who was of the bondwoman, was born after the flesh." But he of the free woman was by promise, which things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answer to, to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that, there, that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Continuing into verses 19 through 20, Paul, th these verses are both very pretty emotional. Um, he's hurting for the Galatians. He's hurting and troubled for them. And he explains this to him. He's telling them about it. He says he's hurting because he has travailed for them. He has wept. He has cried. Um, he's put a lot of work in. And he has experienced pain for them and heartache for them. And he has taken part in their trials and in the things that they've went through. He's seen the emotions of them meeting Christ. And it breaks his heart that they are, are being pulled away from the gospel to another false gospel. He's just kind of at his wit's end um, with the whole situation. And Greek speakers used the term translated perplexed to describe situations in which people were at their wit's end and unable to understand what was happening or what they should do, do next. And Paul seems to have felt this way frequently about the churches under his oversight. He, they stressed him out a lot of times, and the Galatians were no exception. Um, but he continues and he says, do you not hear what the law teaches? And he gives them kind of this story, an allegory, an illustration. It's almost as if Paul is saying, guys, wake up. Do you not see what you're saying and looking to go back to? It'd be like the dog returning to its own vomit, as the Bible tells us. And Paul continues on and he references Genesis and the story of Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Agar. And he gives us a stark comparison between Jerusalem and Mount Sinai. So um, Ishmael and Agar were both sons of Abraham, but one was born without the promise. Ishmael was not born of God's word and was not promised of God to Abraham and was born of the flesh, right? And so Agar was, was uh, uh, you know, or Ishmael was born without the promise. And that term flesh that it's talking about there in, in Genesis, and so it refers to what is merely human rather than divine. With all the weaknesses, both physical and and moral that go with the human condition, Paul's already implied that the Galatians, by coming under the Mosaic Law's authority, are 
putting themselves back with or aligning themselves with the flesh. And we, you know, we find that kind of in, in chapter three and verse three, but Sarah, however, conceived Isaac in old age through divine intervention and in fulfillment of God's promise. Paul has already made the case that Gentile believers, such as the Galatians, represent the fulfillment of God's promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Abraham. And so that's why he's given this illustration between Ishmael and Isaac. One was born with the promise and one was not. Ishmael followed the route of the flesh um, and Isaac did not. He followed the way of the spirit. And that's what he's, he's, that's what he's talking about here when he's given this illustration. Um, There's two covenants, right? One was for the flesh and one gendereth the bondage, which is Agar. And, uh, you know, and that, that, so that he's, he's given this difference. You can choose one or the other. Um, it's kind of what he's telling the Galatians. And, you, you know, and that's back in, if you want to read that, it's actually Genesis uh, 17 through really 20, 21. If you want to read that story, you can find the fulfillment of God's promise to, all, to Abraham and all those things. Um, and, and the story about Ishmael and Agar. But Genesis chapter 17 through 20, you can find that story. Um, but he's given a, a cool illustration here to kind of give us a, a picture of what the Galatians are kind of picking between. One is is going back to the law and that, that promise of the flesh, or we can choose the promise of the spirit that he's given to us. That's that illustration. And so, so what is Paul, what is Paul saying here? He's saying, do you not hear the law that you're wanting to go back to? Do you realize that if you go back to the law, to that old life that you're going away from God and his promise. So Paul sees in this story, a picture of how God begets spiritual children, how a person can become a part of God's family, the people of God. And under the old covenant, you could become a part of the people of God simply by taking on circumcision, something of the Mosaic law, right? You could be in God's people by means of the flesh. You could do a work to be part of God's people. So by taking on circumcision as an expression of mere human initiative, which that's the sort of thing, that's what agitators are telling the Galatians, right? These Judaizers are telling them, get circumcised. You know, for only then will you truly be a part of the people of God. But here's the problem with trying to bring about spiritual birth by human initiative. Human initiative will only get us human results. Or to put it even more simply, flesh will only beget flesh. Sinful humans will only reproduce more and more sinful human beings. That is in our nature. So that's why Paul is insistent that the Old Covenant, with circumcision and the law, that it isn't the answer for the Galatians. For the Old Covenant established at Mount Sinai is only bearing children for slavery. So it, it, you can choose that, right? You can go back to that slave life, is what he's telling them, or you can receive the gift of God and accept the grace of God and that it's enough. And then in verse 27... Paul supports the point that he's just made about the freedom of the Jerusalem above with the quotation from Isaiah 54 and 1. In this text too, God's people have become a, a metaphorical mother, but this mother was once barren, yet now has many children and provides greater context and confirmation for Paul to give to the Gentiles about their freedom and the promise. And so he's, he, he's, he's laying it out before him. He said, you can choose one of these two. Um, but I will tell you that going back to that old life, you're going back to the weak and beggarly elements. You're going back to that life of a slave, that life of bondage. And that's what he's trying to tell them here. Um, all right, verses 28 through 31. Let's read these, and we're getting close to wrapping up here. So now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. 
But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So if we look back at that, at that illustration between, you know, back through verses 20 through 27, Paul is illustrating it a little further here in verses 28 through 31. He says, but now we, as Isaac was, were the children of promise. And he says, but then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit. Even so it is now. And that's what the Judaizers were doing. They were the ones that were born after the flesh. And they were persecuting them that were born after the Spirit, the Galatians. And he's saying, even so, it is now. You're being persecuted because of that. Verse 30, nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. What does that mean? So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So now we kind of finish up this allegory that Paul's teaching us. And Paul is referencing that Isaac is symbolic of the Galatians and that they are now the children of the promise. In verse 29, Paul is using this in reference to portray the Judaizers to the Galatians in the light of them being the false teachers that they are. And Paul finishes chapter 4 here with a, a powerful sentence. He says, Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Get rid of the bondwoman and reject what the Judaizers are teaching them. I'll, I'll finish up with this. If there are things in your life that drag you back down away from Christ, cast them out throw them away and reject it. God has something better for you than for us to waste our spiritual fuel on something that drags us further away from God because we're not children of bondage anymore, but we're children of freedom in Christ. And that's what he's saying here in verse 30. Get rid of it. If it's a, you're not, you're not a bondwoman anymore. You're not part of that bondwoman anymore. You don't have to live in bondage anymore. You don't have to live bound by sin or whatever it may be anymore. You can throw that away. You can reject it and turn to Christ and and have faith in, 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 in the work of Christ. And that's what Paul is trying to teach the Galatians here. He said, you don't need anything extra. Christ is enough. If you go back to that, it's going to be, you know, you're going back to bondage. You're going back to that old life that, that, that kept you down, that kept you away from God. Um, but God has, has so much better for us. There is freedom in Christ. Um, and sometimes as Christians, I don't think that we really realize the freedom that we have in Christ. He delivers from sin. He delivers from bondage. And so if, if you are facing something right now, I would, I would like to encourage you with that, that you can get rid of that stuff. You don't have to. And, and, and it's nothing that you can do. It's not of the flesh. Um, it is trusting in God and his work um, and, and believing that he will and turning to him. Um, but if there, like I said, if there are things that are dragging you away from Christ, you got to get rid of them. You got to cast them out and you got to throw them away. Um, well, that's, that's all I got for today, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to leave a email and, in, in our, our suggestion form link in the description below. We'd love to hear some feedback from you and we'd love some ideas and topics that you'd like to cover. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll dive in next week to Galatians chapter five and then, uh, finish up with chapter six, a couple weeks after that. And so we're kind of getting to the end of the book of Galatians here. Um, I've had a good time doing it so far, but we would love some feedback from you on some topics that you'd like to cover. We're going to continue on, um, with some, you know, just book studies here, but we're going to add in some topical studies as well. And so we would love some feedback from you on that. Um, but we thank you for tuning in guys. We'll catch you on the next one. Thanks.